Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard, but by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the program grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. It's Charlie taking the reins again today, joined by Kate in Gibraltar. How are you doing, Kate? I'm very well, thank you. Enjoying the sunny weather. It's quite sunny here still. November. I knew you were going to rub it in while it's raining <laughs> over here. Um, we have a wonderful guest with us today, Kate. Who have we got joining us? So today we're joined by Tom Ash, who read Modern History at Magdalen College, Oxford, and has taught history in secondary schools for 15 years. Brave man. Okay. He's here today to talk to us about his book, The Century of Calamity, England in the Long 11th Century. Hello, Tom. Hi, and thank you for having me on. Um, I'm. This is my first ever podcast. I hope I'll do all right. You're in safe hands. Don't worry, we'll look after you. Thank you. So what do you mean by the long 11th century and why, why was it calamitous? The long 11th century, because I wanted to write about the period from 975 to 1087, uh, which is 112 years. And the good people at Amberley Publishing suggested that, well, this sounds like a long century uh, to us. So, well, fair enough. Yes, it is. Um, so, yeah, often the 12th century gets called the long 12th century. And <laughs> some might say you can't really have two long centuries back to back. But, hey, it's 112 years. So I'm going with slightly more than a century. And I think it's a coherent enough time period to say, yeah, I'm going to call it a long 11th century. Um, why calamitous? Well, you start with the murder of a king. There's another one later. Uh, you get increasing Viking raids, which eventually culminates in total chaos and invasion and conquest by the men of the North. And then later you have the entire destruction of old England um, in 1066 and with the Norman conquest and colonization that follows. So yeah, again, I'm happy calling this a, a century of calamity. There are several kings during this time period, aren't there, with rather memorable names. Um, firstly, Ethelred the Unready. So his sobriquet actually meant ill-advised, didn't it, rather than ill-prepared. Um, was he as useless as he's usually portrayed, or was he just terribly unlucky? He was unfortunate, but he was also useless. Um, he has got to be 
a candidate for our worst ever king. Um, paying off the Danes is what he's famous for. And of course, to some extent, you can always defend appeasements and lots of very great kings did it. Alfred the Great paid off the Danes, but unlike Ethelred, Alfred uses the time to regroup and prepare to fight, uh, which Ethelred really didn't. Ethelred didn't lead his own armies into battle. Yes, he gets betrayed by several uh, people who shouldn't betray him, uh, but what could he expect when he was not fulfilling his part of the bargain, which is to lead an army into battle himself? Um, he's also somebody who has terrible, he's a terrible judge of character. Uh, he is the man who makes Edric Striona. It's been a long time, but I think, oh, it was around the turn of the millennium, wasn't it, that the BBC ran a, a Great Britons yeah. programme and, and somebody then ran a, a Worst Britons and Edric Striona was one of the characters there. Um, I mean, he was a terrible, terrible human being. Uh, and it's Ethelred who makes him, uh, overlooking other men who would have done a far better job as his chief counsellor. Uh, you've got the dreadful business of the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, which in a way epitomises the worst bits of Ethelred, which is that he's not just inept. He's one of these men who would kiss up and kick down. Um, he would grovel before the powerful, uh, and he would in a way take it out on his subjects and be cruel to them. Uh, just the worst kind of leader. And it's all very well to say that he got unlucky, and he did get unlucky. Uh, of course, facing the Vikings at this stage is a job that nobody would want to do. But look at what happens when he's finally replaced by his son. Um, Edmund Ironside very nearly manages to rescue England from a Viking conquest. He doesn't in the end, but his record is, I think, illustrative of the difference that one good leader, as opposed to a bad leader, can make. So that's a rather lengthy diatribe about Ethelred's badness. But <laughs> yeah, he was E.A. Freeman over a hundred years ago, the great Victorian historian, said that he was a, a bad man and a bad king, and he was both of those things. <laughs> oh, that that book is is just essential reading for any historian. 1066 <laughs> and all that. We love it. So at this time, we're just basically being attacked from all sides. Is is that what's going on in this century? Does a does a king need to be a war king at this time? Yes. A king definitely needs to be a warrior king, um, and Ethelred isn't one. His son, Edward the Confessor, isn't one either, and he manages to hold things together rather well. Um, we can talk about that later. Um, but yes, England is under attack from the north um, and later, well, I say later from Normandy, one reason why Normandy becomes a thing to begin with is the Vikings appear to be using the Norman ports to help themselves to attack England. So, yeah, it's a, a grim situation. Gosh. Okay, well, look, I'm going to watch my pronunciation here. Um, <laughs> I think we, we do need to mention King Canute. Um, mm. He reigns for 20 years. This this sounds insane to me. What what happened during those 20 years? What characterised his reign? Knut's reign is rather quiet. Uh, the chronicles are, are not particularly forthcoming about what happened. Knut is a Dane, and he's involved in the conquest of England under his father and then for himself. And he's a fairly ruthless fairly unpleasant sort of character, but, but I'll give him this. The good thing about being conquered by the Vikings, the good thing about having a Danish king is that the Danes stop raiding. <laughs> so although Knut is... Almost. 
Yeah, he's fairly exploitative. He raises massive taxes on the English. Um, and he uses English soldiers to go and fight his own wars in Scandinavia. But in a way, he's quite a good thing for the country because his presence there means, the fact that the Danes have won, means that the Danes are not carrying on the fight. You know, they are, for the average person in England, especially somebody who lives in coastal areas, but even somebody who doesn't, it's a massive relief to have a Dane on the throne. Um, and actually, Canute seems to, broadly speaking, be a, a fairly effective king. Uh, he can go on pilgrimage to Rome and leave things behind. He can go and fight in Scandinavia and, and leave England be, and things generally seem to hold together. Um, he's quite good at what he does. He was a good thing. <laughs> well... It would have been nicer if, uh, Ethel, if um, well, it would have been nicer if Ethelred had been more effective and been able to repel him and his father. And it would have been significantly nicer if Edmund Ironside had not died when he did. And it may well be that Canute was behind that. There's nothing contemporary to say so, but it was very convenient for him. So a good thing is pushing it, but less of a bad thing than Ethelred. <laughs> Oh, yeah, all well, things are relative, aren't they? <laughs> well, it's certainly true in the 11th century, yes. So um, we, we sort of vaguely, briefly, rather, mentioned uh, another king earlier with a memorable sobriquet, which was Edward the Confessor, so mm. named for his piety. Um, he's also blamed by many historians for the disintegration of royal power in England, isn't he? Do you think this is a fair judgment? I think it's completely unreasonable judgment. Um, Edward is uh, Edward is a very good king. He's a king who keeps England safe for the quarter of a century where he's on the throne. Um, unlike Canute, um, who raised the Gelt and levied it punitively throughout his reign, um, Edward rescinds it. Uh, Edward, broadly speaking, insofar as he has the freedom to act, makes the right appointments to his earldoms. Uh, Edward bears grudges, but he doesn't transfer those from father to son. And it is a cliche, of course, that by the last decade of his reign, Harold, the son of Godwin, is the power behind the throne, is the mayor of the palace of Edward the Confessor. But Edward raised him to that position because, well, he raised him there because he had to. Um, but he elevates his brother Tosti to the earldom of Northumbria. It's the right decision. And yeah, this is where my view is a slightly controversial one. I, I genuinely don't set out to be controversial, but I think Tosti is a very good Earl of Northumbria and that the rebellion against him is essentially cooked up in order to suit his brother, Harold, and the uh, House of Mercia, um, Edwin and Morcar and their sister. So, yeah, I think Edward does a very good job. And he, again, he's sometimes criticised for, uh, for not planning for the succession, or rather for not producing an heir, which always seems to me to be rather unfair. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there there are various reasons, or there may have been various reasons why he and Edith don't have children. Um, I don't think any of them are really reasons we can reproach him with. Uh, but, you know, he does what a very reasonable king would do, which is he sends halfway across Europe um, to the Hungarian court to say, hey, we know that there is a Etheling of the House of Serdic, of the House of Wessex out there, uh, he might be needed because we have him back, please. And <laughs> back comes Edward the Exile and promptly falls down dead. And Edward nurtures his son, um, Edgar, at the royal court. And it's one of those great what might have beens of history is if Edward had lived just a few more years. Um, Edgar the Etheling appears to be around, well, in his early teens in 1066. 
if Edward had just made it to 1070, maybe the whole history of England would have been different. But there we go. So anyway, yeah, he is planning to secure the succession. Um, so I don't know why people have got such a downer on Edward. And just one more thing on that. People at the time don't have a downer on him. And people in the years afterwards don't have a downer on him. The laws of good King Edward become something, become a golden age back to which people look. And there's a reason for that. And it's not just that uh, William the Conqueror is such a terrible man. <laughs> this, I mean, I'm loving talking about terrible men and bad kings. This is, I'm, <laughs> I'm in my comfort zone here. This is great. Um, but I, I want to go sideways and I want to talk about Emma of Normandy um, okay. why was why was she a key figure in this and was it normal in this crazy calamitous century for a woman to wield the kind of power that she did in England no we there's been a lot of interest recently hasn't there in Ethelfled the Lady of the Mercians um, the daughter of Alfred the Great but we're going back quite some way there we're going back to the beginning of the 10th century um, most old English queens are fairly anonymous we know very little about them um, we know very little, for instance, about Ethelred's mother, except that she appears to have coordinated the assassination of Edward the Martyr um, for her own son to take over. Um, she appears in the historical record to do that and then disappears again. And again, Emma herself is married to two kings, uh, both of whom have very anonymous other wives, uh, both of them named Elfifu. Um, which gloriously is the name that Emma seems to be given when she becomes Queen of England. Um, <laughs> they, Talk about anonymity. Well, it's a very strange one. Um, is this because, really, a Queen of England ought to be called Elfifu, um, and this one may be called Emma, but we'll change it? Is it because the Old English found Emma harder to pronounce than Elfifu? You know, is this some kind of 11th century version of how we, we anglicise names today to make them easier for ourselves? No idea. I don't know. Anyway, um, so yeah, it is rare for her to be as influential as she is. Um, she does seem to get quite a bit wrong, doesn't she? Um, I mean, she supports, of course, as you would expect, she supports her son, Harthur Knut, over Harold Harefoot in... 1035 when Knut dies and this appears to make no difference um half of Knut stays in Denmark and then she invites either Alfred or Alfred and Edward Edward the Confessor um and his younger brother from Normandy to well to do what we don't know to come and try and seize the throne for themselves just to come and visit um it seems that the latter is rather unlikely so Alfred comes at his mother's bequest and promptly gets himself arrested and then blinded so violently that he dies. So thanks very much, Mama. Um, and then she asks when eventually Harthur Knut does become king, uh, her favourite son, she then summons Edward or asks him to come from Normandy, which he does, presumably because... We know that Harthur Knut, who was in his early 20s, no reason to expect him to die anytime soon, but he did. And Edward's then on the spot. Uh, who, he then promptly uh, sends his mother away um, because she didn't do enough for him when he was in Normandy. Um, she certainly doesn't seem to be a, a particularly likeable character, um, but why is she important? Um, that's a good question, um, because Anglo-Saxon queens generally weren't. Um, she's married because she's a, a Norman, well, not quite princess and not quite duchess either, the daughter of a Duke of Normandy and therefore the sister of another one. Um, she's initially here as a bog standard, let's try and seal a deal through marriage. Um, 
she becomes important in a way because there's a, a power vacuum. There are where she becomes influential. It's where, for instance, on her second husband's death, it's where the question is, well, who is going to succeed? And she's obviously a, an influential person there. Um, but yes, not, uh, not somebody who survives her younger son's, uh, her younger son's, Ascent to power. She survives it. He doesn't have her executed. I was going to say, what happened to her? Well, she's sent away, says the uh, says the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, into the raging winter. Um, I don't think she was actually sent out into uh, into the outer darkness with uh, with nothing. But certainly her treasury is confiscated and she returns to a quiet retirement, uh, nice and out of the way. Yeah, uh, Edward never liked his, uh, his mother and you can kind of see why. Uh, she did nothing for him. Clearly she preferred Hartha Knut, um, <laughs> her younger, her son by Knut. And dare I suggest... Canute was rather more of a real man than Ethelred was. And if you were bearing, you you were bearing the children involuntarily, of course, of both Canute and of (laughs) Ethelred, you would just be ready as a standard red-blooded woman to prefer those (laughs) by a real man like Canute than by the ineffectual wastrel that was Ethelred. Um, But of course... Edward the Confessor himself can't be expected to take that well, and he didn't. <laughs> so <Really>? that, <laughs> that actually leads really nicely onto the next question. <laughs> you, <laughs> you talk in the book about, about the Vikings quite a bit, and you mention sort of some of their um, customs or the way they are, and I think at one point you mentioned the fact that they regularly wash and comb their hair, unlike the English <laughs> <laughs> were the Vikings as savage as they're made out to be in today's media? I mean, was it relative or, or is it just being blown out of all proportion? Or were they even worse, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's been blown out of proportion. Um, the, the comment about uh, combing their hair and washing, I hasten to add, is uh, <laughs> it's not me. It's uh, John of Wallingford, who is a late a late 12th century chronicler uh, who is explaining why English women preferred Viking men. <laughs> yeah. I think we've covered it. <laughs> well, clearly this was rather, um, well, I don't know, was this rather a, a difficult one for a 12th century chronicler to explain? Um, it's... It feels rather easier for me to explain. I wonder if this comment by John of Wallingford is tapping into, uh, I don't know whether you might call this a folk memory, but, but at least some form of social memory of how Vikings were just more masculine um, than, than the native English, that they come as glorious conquerors and certainly in the reign of Ethelred the Unready, the English spend a long time with their tails between their legs. Uh, Wolfstan, the Archbishop of York, uh, as part of his Sermon of the Wolf, um, reproaches the English uh, for not protecting their women and children from the Vikings, um, for standing by while all sorts of uh, atrocities are carried out. And yeah, I wonder if this kind of, look, the Vikings are real men in a way that the English are not. It kind of survives long enough that John of Wallingford is writing about something which appears to us, of course, rather different. That yeah. Vikings here are, in a way, I don't know, your 11th century metrosexuals taking good care of their skin and their hair and, and so on. Um, to get back to your question about were they as bad yeah we're in a little bit of a uh, of a viking vogue period aren't we they're all over the show and there is 
a school of thought that says that because we are too dependent on English writings, also, of course, Frankish writings as well, who were the victims of the Vikings, that we overstate their villainy. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. When they turn up in England, they, well, they famously, of course, loot, pillage and rape their way through the country. And none of that is very nice. None of that is very civilised. When the Vikings turn up, you can expect them to steal your stuff, to burn your homes, to rape you, to kill you. And if you survive that, you can then expect, well, you can then at least half expect a long lingering death of starvation because you've got nothing to see you through to the next harvest. Um, so uh, I don't know how much worse they need to be. Um, it is certainly true to say that they are not the only people doing this. Mm. When the when you have an English raid into Wales, for instance, they do something broadly similar. Um, the Vikings take slaves and sell them all over Europe. I, I do sometimes roll my eyes and raise my eyebrows when people say, oh, well, you, you must remember the Vikings are, are traders as well as raiders. Well, yes, sure. They trade in stolen goods and they trade in people. Charming. But the old English do this in, in Wales as well. Of course they do. Um, and we know that when they get themselves together, like in the 1002 St. Bryce's Day massacre, uh, the native English are quite capable of acting barbarously as well. Uh, in a way, the, the Vikings are just better at it. Uh, but no, I, I'm afraid I'm not on team. Let's, uh, let's say nice things about the Vikings. Uh, they were barbarous. How long were they... Were they here at this this time? I mean, did they did they actually settle, or did they did they come over, have their wicked way, and then go? Because you, know, you talk about the the. the In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history. We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Relationship between women and Vikings. Would, would that have actually happened? Was that, was that widespread? Were we just talking about dynastic, diplomatic matches? Ah, uh, well, I'm... <laughs> I'm afraid I've fallen into a classic trap here. Um, and the school teacher in me um, comes out at this point and I say, remember, <laughs> Viking is an occupation, not an ethnicity. You're ah, a Viking okay. when, you are, uh, when you are at sea. And it is sometimes translated, um, the word in, when you get contemporary documents translated into modern English, they sometimes translate it as pirate, um, which probably quite a nice translation, you know, the pirate army of the north. <laughs> it's complicated. Um, the first Viking raids happen in the 8th century. And then midway through the 9th century, there's the conquest of almost all of England by the great heathen army, by the, the, the Norsemen. Mm -hmm. And the establishment of the Dane law, uh, which is in the, well, tidally in the north and the east of the country, uh, not the far north of England, but in Yorkshire and in the East Midlands and East Anglia. And it seems that there's a fair amount of settlement there. Uh, we're not talking a very large proportion of the population, but we are talking uh, about some important people at the top of society and therefore changes throughout you get changes in customs and law hence dane law so there is from the mid well 
from the mid ninth century on, there is a Danish presence. And that seems to involve more settlements than anything that happens under Canute. And Canute essentially goes native. He brings with him a few, um, a few Danish supporters and installs some of them into important positions. But otherwise, he essentially governs as a king of England um, and as an English king as well. But there are, there is this Danish presence um, which doesn't ever really go away. That's a long-winded answer to your question, okay. isn't it? Um, but yeah, there is, uh, and when it comes to the St. Bryce's Day Massacre of 1002, for instance, the Chronicles record, well, he had every Dane killed. What exactly does that mean? Quite clearly, it wasn't everybody of Danish descent living in these islands or living on this island. Uh, it wouldn't have been at all possible. And in some towns in the far east of England, uh, this would have been a majority of the people. Um, did it therefore just mean young men of military age? Maybe. We don't know. But we do know that they killed some women as part of it as well. Uh, Palig's wife, of course, and he then goes and exacts retribution. So, yeah, who is a Dane is quite a tricky one. Um, as I say, there are long stand. There is a long-standing Danish population. There are also raiders who come and then go. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Gosh. Well, on, on behalf of the blondes of East Anglia, I'd say that they didn't get us all. Um, <laughs> now, in terms of information at this time and, and the sources that, that you have to, to go from, mm. One of one of the big ones made around this time was the the Bayer tapestry. How how useful is that really? Well, good question. <laughs> it's tremendous fun. Everyone likes the Bayer tapestry. It looks great. Um, some of it clearly is interesting. And for example, we're fairly sure that the tapestry was embroidered by um, the women of Canterbury, by English women, even if it was at the instance of the Normans of Odo of Bayer originally. In the famous scene where Harold is plucking the arrow out of his eye. It says above it, Harold Rex interfectus ex. Harold the king is, uh, is killed. The Normans are quite careful outside of, um, outside of this source, quite careful not to refer to Harold as a king. Their position, their completely outrageous and unreasonable position is that William was the rightful king from the moment Edward the Confessor died because he had been promised the crown. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. The English crown is not private property. You can't bequeath it to someone. But nonetheless, that was the Norman position. It's interesting, I think, that in the tapestry, 
he's described as Harold the King. Um, in the tapestry, which is clearly written, written, what a dreadful thing to say, <laughs> which is clearly embroidered, uh, clearly produced for people who know the story, um, you have famous scenes, for instance, of Edward sending Harold on his infamous 1064, maybe 1065 trip to Normandy. Uh, you have a scene of Harold returning to Edward and there's always a temptation when you watch, when you watch, when you look at the tapestry to see what you want to see in it. I see Edward dispatching Harold and then when Harold returns, Edward saying, well, <laughs> I told you that was a bad idea. <laughs> I'm not sure the two of those work together, but um, if he told him it was a bad idea, well, then why send him in the first place? Clearly, I've misinterpreted one or other of those, but I don't know which it is. Still, quite interesting. I also say something which, do I regret writing? I don't regret writing. <laughs> um, but I think it would be a reasonable thing to, to say, hmm, this is a bit dubious. Where he makes his oath on the holy relics. If you want to, I think you can see in the image of him doing that, I think you can see a kind of slightly careful positioning of the, um, what would you call it, the, the tabletop, the, um, the coverings on top of the table, that they are placed there in a way that implies some kind of concealment. I don't know how fair that is, but I look at it and I think, hmm. Um, and there's also... Again, remembering that this is done under Norman auspices, remembering that this is due to be a celebration of the conquest. Harold is also recorded there, dragging men out of quicksand while on campaign with William in Brittany. So he's very much not portrayed as a villain. He's very much not given a black legend, if you like. So I think that is interesting. It, was this the women of Canterbury trying to sneak a few just about deniable things in there? Were, were they describing him as Harold the King and showing him heroically because they thought, well, if the Earl of Kent should turn up and say, hey, 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 what are you doing showing him in this way? They could just say, sorry, I thought we were telling the story, not intending to disparage you, sir, not at all. I don't know. But it is, therefore, I think, a very interesting source. Yeah. So just sort of sticking with Harold, how much of a part, because he was only king for just under a year, wasn't he? Yeah. How, how much of a part did he actually play in the events of, of the 11th century, in, in what happened? How, how much effect did he have on, on it? Harold is often seen as a bit of a tragic hero. Um, you know the the last English king, the the great what if of English history, the the one who we instinctively side with, don't we, when it comes to ten sixty six? Yeah, I mean we've all heard of him. Yeah, the by your tapestry. I just wondered if he actually did that much. <laughs> Harold is a very big man. Harold is the foremost man in the kingdom from when he's elevated to becoming Earl of Wessex in 1053 until Edward the Confessor's death. Uh, he and his brother Tosti are described as uh, England's, England's mighty oaks. Um, he effectively governs the country in the south while his brother deals with the north while Edward essentially enjoys a, a rather relaxed retirement. Um, Edward seems to be quite happy to leave Harold to run things um, and to go and enjoy his country sports and to attend mass every day. So Harold is very much influential, is essentially the governor of the country um, under the king, of course. He was almost sorry. doing the job, sorry, he was almost doing the job before the job was his to do, wasn't he then? 
I think so. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and he's very effective at that. But this is a bit of a bugbear of mine, um, if you'll indulge me. Um, he is responsible to a very large extent, I think, for the conquest, not just because of some of the mistakes he makes in the campaigns, but because he very much picks the wrong horse when he decides to betray his brother and side with the House of Mercia, to side with Edwin and Morca um, instead of with Tosti. Um, something that doesn't get said enough. There's a rebellion in the summer of 1065 against Edward the Confessor, but really it's against Tosti, the Earl of Northumbria. And he is denounced by the Northumbrian thanes. He's denounced as a tyrant and they march well outside Northumbria. They march down to the South Midlands, burning things as they go and saying, we must have another, uh, we must have another earl. Tosti is a tyrant. He rules us badly. Well, okay. Um, and Harold sides with the rebels. And this is sometimes portrayed as Harold would have it portrayed, as Harold seeing the good of the country ahead of the good of his family, as Harold putting the kingdom first, and Tosti does indeed get exiled. Well, in the Vita Edwardi Regis, in the life of King Edward, uh, which is written around 1066, um, there's a record in there that Tosti accuses Harold of plotting and fermenting that rebellion. And this is always written off by historians as, oh, yeah, well, he would say that. And this is quite obviously nonsense. And even the anonymous author of the Vita says something very close to, well, I can't possibly believe that this is true. And of course, we don't have evidence of that plot exactly taking place. But put the circumstantial evidence together. The rebels say that Tosti was a tyrannous ruler. Fine. That's not what Simeon of Durham says, by the way. Um, uh, another 11th century chronicler, he records gratefully gifts that Tosti made to, um, to Durham, to the Diocese of Durham and to that cathedral. The Northumbrian rebels who denounce him, they don't demand a Northumbrian to replace him. They don't just say, we want him out. They demand Morca, the younger brother of the Earl of Mercia, to, as their new Earl. They get it. Morca's sister then gets married to Harold, and she gives birth to a boy, possibly posthumously, possibly just before Harold's death. Um, Harold then sides with them and says, yes, Tosti, you were a tyrant. You must go into exile. Edward the Confessor is reported as being incandescent about how people wouldn't fight for him, how he wanted to put down this rebellion, but people refused to. Who are those people? This can only be Harold himself. <laughs> Harold himself is at the head of Wessex. He would quite easily be able to raise an army to go up north and put down this rebellion. He refuses to. He doesn't want to. What, is it a coincidence that this happens in the summer of 1065? No, of course it isn't. This is happening while Edward is dying. This is why the rebellion happens at this point. Harold, sure enough, becomes king. Edwin, the Earl of Mercia, and Morca, the new Earl of Northumbria, support him. because the, And, sorry, their sister becomes queen. Now, look... This is quite clearly a plot. This is quite clearly an arrangement made. You can understand the position of Edwin and Morca here. You can understand why they would want not William of Normandy, because, well, 
even in the 11th century, the word bastard had the same double meaning it has today. <laughs> um, illegitimate birth, an unpleasant character. It's clear that they don't want him. It's clear that they know that Harold ultimately could take the throne if he wanted to, but they want him to be constrained. They don't want him to have full power. So they want Edwin to stay as Earl of Mercia. They want Morco as Earl of Northumbria, and they want their sister, Edith, to be Harold's wife and queen. And guess what? They get all that, and in return, they support him. For that to work, Tosti needs to be moved out of the way. So they move Tosti out of the way. Gosh. That was a rather long answer. I forget what your no. question was. You led me down my favourite rabbit hole. I do apologise. No, this is a great <laughs> rabbit hole. You can just, you, you know, you can, every, every story that's ever been written since, you know, you get little shades of this. It's feeling very Game of Thrones slash Hollyoaks <laughs> to me at the moment. <laughs> Loving it. Um We've, we've touched on 1066. It's the date that sticks in everybody's mm. head. Um, tell us a bit about the Normans and the threat from the Normans. Who, who were they? Um, why did they become so important? Well, originally, they're from Scandinavia as well. <laughs> um, Normans are the men of the North. It's a French term for Northmen or Norsemen. Um, and originally, the first Duke of Normandy, Rolf or Rollo in French, is given the land, well, in the western part of Normandy, gradually the, uh, the area gets bigger. Um, in the year 911, uh, by you talked earlier about uh, glorious names by Charles the Simple of France. Well, um, <laughs> poor old Charles the Simple. In a way, it's quite a sensible thing for him to do. He's dealing with lots of Viking raids. They all come sailing up the River Seine. So he says, "Yeah, you know what? You have this part of the coast. You settle it. You get to be uh, Count of Normandy as." Holf was to begin with um, and now it's your territory so you can defend it against anybody who might come raiding here um, so to begin with they are just other Vikings who settle in that particular part of France over time um, the King of France is unable to control them, they're theoretically vassals of the King of France but Normandy always operates as an independent entity, really. And you're like this. At some point, they stop calling themselves Counts of Normandy and start calling themselves Dukes. There's no record of any particular Count of Normandy being promoted. Uh, it's, it's a very Norman thing to do, to just say, look, we're now we're grand <laughs> enough. We're going to call ourselves Dukes of Normandy. Yeah, well, thanks very much. Um, in, I'm your classic 21st century man here. In that I'm quite reluctant to use terms like they're a martial race. Um, but clearly, to hold Normandy, you have to be quite some warrior. Um, and they have a string of rather militarily effective dukes the last of whom, well, he's certainly not the last of them, but the last in our period, the last in my period. <laughs> uh, William is is a classic of his type. You know, he has to seize control of the duchy for himself. And eventually, before coming to England, he manages to conquer the territory of men, Maine. I never know how to pronounce that correctly. I should have prepared before coming <laughs> on. Um, the territory just to the south of Normandy, of which Le Mans is the main town. Um, yeah, they are described in several English sources by this stage, though, as French. Um, so although there is this northern heritage to them, they are essentially, I mean, they speak Norman French, which is much more French than it is Old Norse. Um, they adopt Christianity, um, a rather 
conventionally pious form of Christianity. And they are big warriors. Yeah, there's a couple of years later, the a couple of years after 1066, there's a, a Norman conquest in Sicily as well. Normans are big crusaders. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of Norman participation in that. They are people who then come to England and are rather oppressive, um, but they manage to do it because they are extremely well-organised militarily. Again, I hate to be pompous about this. It's worth remembering <laughs> that not all the Normans were Normans. Um, one reason why this small duchy gets to conquer England, there are many reasons, uh, but one of them is that it's not just the Norman baronage that come. There are Bretons, there are Flemings, there are people from all over uh, the Kingdom of France who come to give it a, a go. They come to chance their arm and that's exactly what they get. So, yes, yes, that's the Normans. So we briefly mentioned William the Conqueror. He successfully invaded England when so many before him had failed. Um, what? Why was that? And what then did he um, did he do in, in creating the Doomsday Book? What did what did his creation of that record mean for future generations? Can I pick you up on where many before him failed? England's quite easy to conquer in the 11th century. It's a, <laughs> all of the Vikings came, but none of them kind of stayed and actually took over the country where William the Conqueror, well, I mean, he didn't stay, did he? He came and went, but he hmm. did take control, shall we say. This is true. Um, Swain conquers the country before he, he dies. Hmm. And Canute, of course, successfully conquers the country and then uh, rules it for 20 years. So... England isn't that difficult to conquer in the 11th. <laughs> um, point. Let, let me rephrase this then. William the, sure. Conqueror was, <laughs> William the Conqueror was yet another person who successfully <laughs> invaded England. <laughs> yeah. What did he do differently though? Because I mean, he created, and really what I want to talk about, I suppose, is, is uh, the Doomsday Book, because he mm. created that, didn't he? Um, so, what, why did he create it? And, and I mean, we still refer to it now, don't we? Why was it so important? Historians love the Doomsday Book. This isn't going to answer your question, is it? Um, I love I mean, its name. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there is this, well, it's the, the final judgment. You know, what it says in this book is what the situation is. And historians like it because it tells us all sorts of things about the English population. It tells us, for instance, how many Thanes there were approximately 5,000, gives us a clue that probably around a tenth of the population were slaves. It certainly shows us about the elimination of the old English land-owning class and about the damage done by the harrying of the North. And historians in particular love, love, love whoever it was, whichever clerk in William's office who said, you know what, the Doomsday Book should say not just who holds the land now, but who held it on the day when King Edward was living and dead um, so that we can see this change over time. So you can say, yeah, in January 1066, this is who held it, and now this is who holds it. So I think it's become uh, popular uh, with historians for that. It's partly just a massive survey of the country to say, look, how much tax can we screw out of people? Where is the wealth in this country? How do we, the crown, get at it? It's also interesting and important, I think, for what happens around the time in August 10. 86 with the Salisbury Oath, that when these books are finally gathered together and written up, and there you have a, a, a great record of who owns what and where all the wealth is, and who holds land from whom, that William then doesn't just take the homage and fealty 
of his tenants-in-chief of the approximately 167 barons who hold land directly of him, but also of the men a step below that, of those who hold land, of those who hold land of the king. So the subtenants of those tenants-in-chief. Theoretically, at least in the textbooks, the feudal system is just a, a pyramid of obligation, isn't it, where you hold land from the king and then you sublet it to somebody else who holds it from you and there's your chain of allegiance, which can, of course, be dangerous if somebody towards the top of that pyramid decides to use his influence, decides to rebel against the monarch and therefore take all the people who hold land of him with them. Well, the Salisbury Oath is where all those subtenants also do homage and fealty to the king himself, a way of saying, look, of course, I owe a duty to my baron. Of course, I owe a duty to the person whom I directly hold land of. But ultimately, my loyalty is to the king. And if my lord should instruct me, his vassal, to do something against the interests of the king, well, then it's my duty to resist that. Um, this, I think, is a, an interesting illustration of the, the kind of thing that William and, of course, later his successors would struggle with. Um, that doesn't quite answer your question, does it? I'm doing this terrible thing of saying, let me talk about what I want to talk Look, about instead it, of what you've asked. It, it's it's <laughs> perfect. I think it's a really nice, it, it gives a nice sort of rounding off to talking about such a mad, calamitous, crazy time is a lovely big book of lists. <laughs> um, listen, Tom, we need to say a huge thank you to you for cramming 112 years of just so much incredible activity into um, just over 45 minutes of our time. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. Um, I'm afraid I love to pontificate and you've given me the opportunity and I'm very grateful. Uh, it's been lovely to talk to you. It's been great. Remind us what the title of the book is and where we can get hold of it. The Century of Calamity and you can get it from all good bookshops. <laughs> Fantastic. Tom Ash, the history teacher we wish we'd all had. Thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. Hello folks, Zach again here. As you know, we love bringing you these podcasts, but each episode has a huge investment of time behind it. For every hour of showtime, there's often a good four or five or six hours of work that's going in behind the scenes. We want to bring you more content, video content even, but as reality has hit and the need to earn a living has returned, we just haven't been able to do that. That's where you come in. Your support doesn't need to be financial. You can follow us on Twitter at hack underscore history. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. Even simple likes, shares and retweets make a huge difference in widening our reach beyond the small army of you who tune in. And if you love the show, leave a review. If all our listeners were able to find the two minutes to do that, it would massively increase our reach. Of course, we totally get that times are hard and money is tight. If you can spare something and want to, there are different ways that you can help. If you want to become a regular supporter, check out patreon.com forward slash history hack. There are all kinds of perks across different levels of support, with prices starting at £3 a month. If you just want to send us a one-off tip, then visit co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description to this episode. But importantly... Also, have a think about supporting our listeners. The hour they spend with us is a minuscule fraction of the time that they spend researching and writing their books. With that in mind, we set up the History Hack bookstore, where you can support both them and us, instead of funding Jeff Bezos' next trip into space, which is what pretty much happens when you buy via Amazon. Again, the link is in the description, and we have a huge back catalogue of titles written by our guests. When you buy via uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, we get a percentage and so do independent booksellers. Whatever form your support takes, 
we massively appreciate it. So from Alex, Boney and me, and the rest of your Down the Pub regulars, thank you and have a great day. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.